everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, March 6, 2019 edition of our little weather get-together. And tonight is a uh, kind of a somber note. Uh, as you know, there's been some severe weather in the area. And tonight we look to recap that with a very uh, extensive show uh, talking about what has happened over the past weekend. But before we do that, I do want to tell you this is a live broadcast. If you would love, we'd love your interaction throughout the show tonight. Uh, you can do that one of many different ways. You can uh, submit comments on our Facebook Live, on our Periscope stream, and on our YouTube page. And if you're listening to the podcast, uh, you can also submit those towards um, the end of the show. We'll give you the opportunity that you can uh, submit those questions to particular guests. We'd also like to welcome our friends who are on Beam TV down in Alabama. We welcome you to the show. And uh, we just want to let you know that we're thinking of you all down there. And uh, we hope that uh, recovery hope uh, happens very fast. So with that, I want to toss to James Briarton, who's going to give us the latest on the severe weather outbreak that we'd experienced this weekend. On Sunday, the United States experienced its deadliest tornado outbreak since the one we saw in Moore, Oklahoma in 2013. This past weekend, 23 people lost their lives to tornadoes. The storm system prompted 97 tornado warnings across four states. Seen here, divided up by local National Weather Service offices, the hardest hit areas were undoubtedly along the borders of Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. 97 tornado warnings is 97 times that countless communities sent themselves and their families to safe places. 34 of those tornadoes turned out to be the real thing. We'll talk about them coming up. But undoubtedly, the most destructive tornado was the one near Columbus, Georgia, where for 70 miles, an EF4 tornado with winds estimated to be 170 miles an hour to our path of destruction through five counties. In Alabama, Macon and Lee, and in Georgia, Muskogee, Harris, and Talbot. All in all, 23 people lost their lives in just that one tornado. Another seven were injured, and countless more lost their homes. Tonight, we're dedicating our entire hour to talking about the tornado outbreak. We're going to be talking with three top-notch storm chasers who previously agreed to be on our program long before any indication that there would be a tornado outbreak this weekend. But first, we need to talk about the victims and how you can help them. We're about to show you a piece of videotape from WRBL Television in Columbus, Georgia. It's not an easy story to hear. The reporter Elizabeth White talked with a grieving mother who lost her 8-year-old son this weekend. We're asking you to take a listen to this. And then on the other side, we will talk about ways that all of us can help those hurting the most. He was a very just sweet boy. He was really intelligent. Shamel Hart says her son, nine-year-old Jonathan, was born with a loving heart and inquisitive mind. Jonathan's big brother, Jalen, agrees. He was, he was a, he was very smart. A lot of people love my brother. Sunday, Hart, her two sons, and her mom were at her cousin's house with her three children and boyfriend. Her cousin's home sits near Highway 51 in Beauregard in the direct path of Sunday's catastrophic EF4 tornado. I pretty much threw myself on top of just about everybody since I weighed the most. Mama tried, and my mama and my aunt, auntie tried to cover as many of us as they can, but they all fell through the... They fell through the, through the floor, and I was still in the house, and the house just flipped over, and I fell out. I heard, I heard all the kids screaming, and um, I tried to hold them a little tighter, and that's when I just 
the whole floor like just snatched from under us and um I just, we were always in the air. First voice I could hear was screaming was my little niece. So I grabbed her out of the trees. And she had blood all over real bad and I was yelling for Jalen and Jonathan. And um I seen my mom, she was saying her leg was broken. And um right before I could go help her I seen Jalen. Um he was kneeling over Jonathan. And um, I, I think he had a, a really deep bad cut on his head to where you could you could see his skull. I started performing CPR and um, and, and he started back breathing. Badly injured and trapped by large trees and other debris, Jalen began digging out, helping his family and strangers, while his mother carried his injured brother and his auntie carried her injured daughter. I picked him up and did like a fireman carry over some trees and stuff and um, that's when the guy, um, that's when the guy, um, he um, jumped out the truck with a chainsaw and he just started plowing through trees to make a path for my cousin and uh, me to bring the babies to him. Hart's niece, eight-year-old Michaela Walden, passed away from her injuries. Walden's mother is asking her child's picture not be shared right now, and we are respecting her privacy. Hart's son, Jonathan, passed away at East Alabama Medical Center. <laughs> and I, I, I know he was, he was fighting really hard for me. Um, because I believe he, he still could hear me um, crying for him to just to try. And I know he was really, really trying. And um, we was at the hospital. I, I just seen how his body just seemed like it was just under so much stress. And, and I could tell his heart was like he was, he was doing all he could. And um, I just told him that it's okay to let go. <laughs> like, like I, I really want you here with me, but it's okay to let go. No pain on earth can compare to the loss of a child. As for Jalen, his heart is hurting deeply for the loss of his little brother and his mother's pain. I'm trying to make her look on the bright side because I can tell that's why my brother wanted, didn't want her to cry because that's why he was trying so hard. He didn't want her to cry. So I'm trying, I'm making sure, that's why he ain't want to leave. I'm trying to make sure my mama does be okay. For now, mom and son are clinging to one another. A GoFundMe account has been set up to help the family pay for funeral and medical expenses. And our thoughts and prayers remain with them. Reporting on your side in East Alabama, I'm News 3's Elizabeth White. Family and friends of 23 storm victims, all with similar stories of loss, pain, and destruction. And joining us now from Columbus, Georgia, is WRBL-TV's chief meteorologist, Bob Jeswald. Bob, we just watched the piece from your colleague, Elizabeth White. That is one of the most heartbreaking and touching pieces of television I've seen in a long time. How is the community doing? Pretty surprisingly, is is doing um, as well as anyone could imagine. It's amazing how everyone has come together as one. I mean, it's it's like everybody's family right now, 
And um, I'm just paraphrasing the day of the tornadoes when we heard about the, the first several fatalities. Sheriff Jay Jones said, he goes, um, he goes, I would expect no other of Lee County, you know, in this particular case. And of course, we're focused on the story that Liz just did, but it's all the counties across the board, even in uh, areas of Muskogee, Harris and Talbot counties that were greatly impacted. They're all coming together. And I, I would say if that doesn't speak volumes, I mean, they're hurting. I mean, they're hurting. And I, I just think that's really what it is. I mean, but people are coming together, James. Bob, you at WRBL and PNB Broadcasting, local radio company, are organizing a relief effort to help these people as best as you can. Tell us a little bit about that. About that. We are doing something really great tomorrow with the Red Cross. If you go to WRBL.com, there's a couple ways you can help out. I'm going to start with this. Go to our website, click the tab, and you can make a $10 donation, which will take you right to the American Red Cross. The Red Cross has two areas we're going to be working at tomorrow. Uh, we're working on at 5 o'clock in the morning, and we'll be there till 7 p.m., but we're going to be broadcasting live from Tigertown Shopping Center. This is right in Auburn. It's as easy as that. You just put it in your GFS, your GPS, excuse me, and you'll get right there. Or in Columbus, Georgia, right on uh, Whittlesea Road, will be right in Whitesville Road, pardon me. We will be right at the Columbus Crossing location at Sam's Club for another uh, location. We're not asking for drop-off. These are monetary donations that the Red Cross could use. And again, if it's not convenient for you tomorrow to go to these two areas, uh, to see uh, people coming together, it's kind of a camaraderie place. It's kind of showing you, hey, if you're shopping, you're doing whatever at either one of these locations in Auburn or in Columbus, uh, you can give back and give a hug and or just come out and help volunteer. Um, but I think at this point, uh, you know, some of the drop-off locations for some of the donations, not asking for water, but for, uh, for particular supplies, but it's really monetary is a big thing and because they can disperse that and use it where everybody needs it to, uh, to help out. Two drop-off locations, one in Columbus, one in Opelika, and then online donations, wrbl.com. We'll have the link on carolinaweathergroup.com as well too. And Bob, you said that goes to the American Red Cross? Correct, yes, it goes to the American Red Cross. And it would be Auburn, Tigertown. I think that's that should be Auburn location, uh, Tigertown. That's that the exit that's continues on. If you're if you're taking 280 north, you you could get off that exit off of 85, and that's um, the way to come right into Tigertown and um, at the shopping center right there. And then um, of course American Red Cross is doing a great job. I mean they are there. All their volunteers have been working tirelessly. This is what they do for a living, um, and they're they're making sure. That all the money they'll be able to get this, the, the right supplies, um, you know. Sometimes even even things for children to be comforted. They, they you know they can even give them a teddy bear or something that was close to them that they lost in this tornado. That uh, something that was special to help comfort children. It's amazing from the psychological levels all the way to the the needs that are physical needs and those things that help support a family get back on their feet the best they can and uh, maybe even give them you know obviously hotel accommodations whatever it may be in the short term. Uh, so we could get them placed back in their home. Certainly a Certainly wide a variety, variety of needs, needs. Uh, that the American Red Cross will be helping to fulfill with donations that folks will be bringing you either on location or in person. Bob, while we have you, let me ask you, you were on the air on Sunday for countless hours. What was that like for you as a broadcaster? You were on television, you were on PMB radio stations, being heard from Auburn to Columbus all the way down to Eufaula. Can you just give us a little bit of an insight into what that was like for you? It was, uh, out of all the years I've been working, the 
the worst I've ever thought up to this point, and I, I was not during the air, but it was in um, Jackson, Mississippi in the early 90s, 93, the Rankin County tornado disaster came in as an E. Well, today it would have been classified as an EF5, but it was like an F5 that came through out of Vicksburg and um, did something very similar would happen in Beauregard. And although at that time we didn't have the technology, I didn't know anything about it, so we weren't on air like we were the other day. Uh, 2011, 2015, we had tornadoes, March 1 of 07, we had um, deaths in the last 13 years in Columbus, Georgia was it was in Sumter County and there were two people that, that uh, lost their lives and I thought that it can't get any worse than that and then the kids in Enterprise but that wasn't on the air in our viewing area that were killed in a gymnasium there were seven children there uh, but that this was a little bit more personal everybody says they've never seen anything like this until it happens to you obviously it changes everything so when I was on the air it was getting in a mode where we had a comfort and we had to tell people to keep a clear head because without a clear head and you panic, you're setting yourself up for not doing the right thing. So that was the message I kept conveying. Uh, there were several times I had to pause because I knew these neighborhoods were people I knew. Um, we knew people were dying as this was going on and I knew how bad it was. I mean, there was a debris signature that I've never seen before in this area that lasts as long as it did. I mean, the track, um, even though it, it, it ranked in different intensities from 170 mile per hour where the, the uh, physical elements were just just uh, right, and, and then at that time is where it almost exploded into that EF4, it continued along that 72, 73 mile track before it ended in Talbot County and through that whole way it was all about just trying to, at times you get choked up, taking a pause, don't show too much emotion, and controlling that emotion, still maintaining you know, professionalism, but at the same time, in your head trying to balance, I know how bad this is, but I need to let people know this isn't the time to panic. Right now I'm telling you, you must get in the center part of your home, leave enough walls between you and the outside, and uh, can't stress it enough, off, never be in a second story, always be at the lowest interior section of any secure building. And, um, and, you know, what can you say to somebody who's in a, a mobile home or, uh, a, you know, any kind of a park model, uh, which we had seen people survived in Talbot County, a real emotional story at WRBL.com in Talbotton when uh, Governor Kemp came down to embrace um, Kayleen Butler and her family who uh, just barely made it. And, and it, you look at the, the, you know, the mobile home they lived in, it was wrapped around a tree and it's, you can't believe these people got out of this alive. So... Um, you know, this it, it, it really was a balancing game of emotion and trying to keep perspective but be professional. And uh, that probably was the hardest thing I ever had to do in my whole career. And I've been doing this since 89, 1989. Bob, I think we actually have a copy of that package you mentioned out of Talbotton, and I'll share it with our viewers here momentarily. I want to ask you this first, though. You said something that stuck out to me. You know these people, you know these neighborhoods, you're a local broadcaster, you are in this area, you're not being beamed in via satellite, you are a member of this community. What role does broadcasting have in events like this? It's our time that we can save a life, and, and that's why we always cut in. I always tell everybody, you may see us cut in and it's not in your neighborhood because we can't be specific and orient you know, where a storm is and it may be 100 miles from you, and you're like, that's not my neighborhood, get, get my program back on the air. This is a time as a broadcaster and as a unit, as a team, all of us that day, uh, communicating, getting the images out there, um, letting people know what to do and not to do, and uh, keeping them safe after the storm, before the storm, 
and the, the communication through technology, kind of like what you and I are doing this morning, afar, but at the same time, utilizing all these tools we had through digital media, all these platforms where people were losing power, they could go to these other ways of streaming this. They had the opportunity to go directly to the website, and at the same time, they could go to radio. And then Dave Arwood, that we're sorry we couldn't make it here this morning, and, but Dave and uh, PMB Broadcasting, for something this bonafide, typically we're on Q1073 for those folks watching here on Beam TV, um, they were able to put us on every one of their stations, which is a dozen. I can't even name them all. Dave was here. I don't even know if he can name them all. But it's it's this way of sharing partnership and, and combining technology and communicate, and that's what we're supposed to do. We, we got the message out the best we could. And uh, at the same time, losing a lot of areas, we're losing power, and then all of a sudden didn't have any way of communication. And then they had their they had their phones at this point, which really helped. And then the phones you got, you know, of course they were able to uh, catch us on digital. And then the roles of the local broadcasters in the recovery and the relief afterwards. We'll go ahead and share once more the drive for tomorrow. Two locations in the local Columbus area, the Columbus Metro, one in Columbus and one up in Lee County. And you can also donate at WRBL.com and CarolinaWeatherGroup.com. Uh, Bob, I appreciate your time, and I think we are going to go ahead and roll that package out of uh, Tobleton. Can you tell us a little bit about what we're about to see? About to see is an incredible embrace and courage and faith of a woman who um, grew up in this area and although we see tornadoes in here and over you can go over 50 years she just to point my point is she'll say well i've never seen anything like this in my life I've, but and here we are in an area maybe uh, never impacted but once it hit her it hit her hard but what you're going to experience is seeing the strength and the courage of of what her son-in-law's her daughter-in-law did her son's uh, wife in this terrible terrible event uh, she was able to save her child and at the same time uh, suffered serious injuries and then have comfort from the governor which made it very special for her because uh, not at all putting down we know what happened in Beauregard all the lives lost they just felt like in Tobleton they lost everything and nobody knew where they were or what was going on and, and then it all came together to show that we we care about every one of you and um, and certainly she's appreciative of that and she tells a compelling story and this is why my family is alive. Kayleen Butler clutched tight to a copy of the New Testament as she walked through what was left of her son's home. The book was one of the few items that survived Sunday's tornado that ripped the family home apart. This is where it was. A tornado picked it up and threw it over. Butler says her 12 and 14 year old granddaughters were home with their mother and maternal grandmother when the storm hit. She says her daughter-in-law described having 30 seconds to grab everyone and throw them into the bathtub. When the tornado ripped the top of the trailer off, one of the children almost got sucked in. She reached and she grabbed her daughter because they looked up in the tornado and she was going up and she grabbed her and she brought her back down. Ripped in half and flipped upside down, Butler says she's grateful her family was able to walk away from the rubble alive. They have nothing. The cars, the truck, their home. But we have them, and I thank God for that. She also says she was touched by a visit from Governor Brian Kemp Monday when he came to survey damage. It, it means the world for him to stop. It's devastation. That means he cares about Georgia. And I... I'm glad I voted for him.
Kemp himself offered comfort to Butler, her family, and all Tallbutton's residents displaced by the natural disaster. We'll be praying. For Please do. You Thank you so much. Reporting on your side, Michaela Singleton, WRBL News 3. And again, information on your screen, how you can donate financially in the greater Columbus area tomorrow in Columbus and in Opelika, or you can make donations at WRBL.com. Let's bring back in our panel now. Scotty Powell will take it from here. Thank you, James. Just amazing stories, some sad and, and some good, as we just saw um, from that lady there. So, again, our thoughts are with everyone um, in the area that's been affected. And um, just know that your friends here in the Carolinas are here for you. And it seems like in these big events, uh, the community comes together afterwards and really pitches in and, and helps those who need it. And uh, that is definitely the, the cry and the call uh, this evening for the Southeast. So uh, let's bring in our guests tonight. We uh, kind of pre-booked this show before the threat of severe weather. So I uh, just kind of lined up that uh, that we would have Brett Adair, uh, Brendan Kopik, and Alex Hayworth with us. Uh, they are all storm chasers who are actually out uh, this weekend, uh, along with our panelist, Chris Jackson, who was chasing uh, this uh, line of severe storms that produced numerous tornadoes in the southeast. So I want to bring those guys in. And, and guys, uh, my question to you is, as we kick off uh, our interview portion of the show, uh, as your storm chasers, as you look last week, kind of reminisce uh, what what you were thinking about as we started seeing the SPC uh, send out some information of uh, the probability of seeing severe weather over the weekend. Talk to us about your, your, your time frame of what it takes to get prepared to chase these storms and what you're looking at, uh, what weather information you're looking at to uh, best position yourself to uh, intercept these storms. And uh, Chris, I'll let you uh, go first because uh, you know our our guest a little bit better than us. So I'll let you kind of lead that question and then toss it to our guest. Yeah, absolutely, Scotty. So uh, basically, I'm pretty sure we all we all have a little bit of the same method, but we all have our individual methods also. But, uh, you know, basically just start uh, looking at the, your medium long term models and then you start identifying patterns. And uh, from there, you just try to hone in on it as, as you get closer to the event. Um, and, and from there, you just you just continue to look at the setup and how it evolves. And, uh, you know, I want to bring in our guest because I, I know uh, Brett's going to have a lot of insight to provide, and also Brandon. So, uh, Brett, Brett, what about you? Yeah, Chris, um, I have to look at it from a couple of different standpoints because I'm doing telev television as well as a meteorologist for Weather Nation TV. So I'm going out doing the TV side of things along with the storm chasing. So basically, we were looking at it from a couple of days in advance, just like everybody else. Started noticing a synoptic pattern there that was, you know, uh, reminiscent of deep south severe weather outbreaks for early spring. Um, a lot of it was dependent upon moisture and a lot of it was dependent upon uh, timing. This is one of those situations where we had a surface low that ran right across Alabama. A lot of shear with a warm front present. And the real question was how much moisture would get far enough north to get us sufficient instability for tornadoes. I don't think the turning and the low level shear was ever really a question. It was more so the instability. And unfortunately, as we have seen now, we had sufficient instability to produce a couple of long track supercells that produced tornadoes with 50 plus mile long path lengths. And unfortunately, you know, the most fatal tornado that we've seen since 2013. One of the caveats that assisted in giving us more instability that was not really seen on the models early on is we had a dry slot in the mid-levels that moved 
into the outbreak region and actually made that instability go a little bit higher than we thought, had steeper lapse rates, had more evaporational cooling processes in the mid-levels. So those storms, once they were able to take off in the afternoon, they really took off. And, you know, the SPC, I want to give them kudos because they absolutely identified that significant tornado parameter area very early and often with their updated mesoscale discussions that they put out, you know, identifying specific areas. And our media partners here in Alabama and in Georgia were able to relay that message to the public. And the National Weather Service in Birmingham was very, very adamant about pulling the trigger once they saw that those storms had the potential to do what they did. Yeah, absolutely. I want to. I, I def, I've never seen the SPC issue. Uh, you know, those mesoscale discussions in such a tight hatched area. You know, especially that uh, that uh, area within probably 25 miles of Columbus and uh, Smith Station, Alabama. You know, that, just like what you said, they absolutely nailed it. What about you guys, Brandon, Alex, and get in on the conversation? Brandon, go uh, ahead. Well, uh, there's not much more I can say that would uh, do anything but echo what Brett's saying. But, it, you know, I was really concerned about the lapse rates looking at the models. But I was it was one of those things that I was like, it's just one ingredient that's really missing that's making this a big event. So we decided literally 3 p.m. on Saturday to drive down from Toledo to Alabama to head out and chase the event. Uh, the day The day prior... Uh, that 60 outlook by the Storm Prediction Center, they were kind of worried about the storm mode and all the ingredients that were going to come together, but they absolutely nailed it on that. Uh, I, it's odd enough to say with how storm chasers feel about broils, but he was the first one to catch on to it, and it just they just did a superb job on that event, and we just couldn't believe how it unfolded. It definitely did, was well above our expectations. I'd really like to add to that about the National Weather Service issuing mesoscale discussions for every uh, potentially violent tornado that actually did produce a violent tornado. They were on top of their game. They were issuing tornado emergencies, and they were definitely on top of their game that day. Chris and all you guys, it seems like there's a little bit of uh, some hesitation sometimes by some of the meteorological community as to if they should be issuing these things. As chasers, you guys have kind of talked about the value it gives, but do you think that things like this will be more helpful in the future if the SBC continues to do them? Well, I, I think, Ricky and Brett, you guys can get in after me, but I, I really think that, uh, you know, the, the mesoscale discussions outside of the weather community aren't, aren't well known. And, uh, you know, they, they've started doing that more and more the last couple of years. And it's just like, you know, Brett, Brandon and Alex said, I mean, they absolutely nailed this thing. I, I don't know how you can get better. I, really, I mean, you know, guys, what's your thoughts on it? Well, Chris, the biggest thing that really stood out to me is, you know, just a week prior, we dealt with an event over Mississippi and the SPC dealt with a little bit of flack there, in my opinion. I mean, we did have some tornadoes, but things were kind of ramped up with the moderate risk over there, didn't pan out due to some of those mesoscale issues and some contamination there that occurred with, you know, some of the some of the storms that fired off ahead of the main threat area. So for them to come back and in my opinion, this looked like this was something that was more in a beta because I've never seen the SPC issue such small discussions for specific storms before. I feel like that they really felt that this was 
you know, the potential to be a high end catastrophic type event. And it allowed them to get that word out. It allowed them to communicate not only with their weather service partners on a local level, but they were able to communicate with a lot of public entities because social media is a very powerful tool. You're seeing more SPC information on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of those platforms that people are paying attention to because a lot of people have cut the cord now. And I believe 100%, I know we lost over 20 lives in central Alabama during this event, and it was devastating and very damaging. I do still believe that those gutsy calls that they made absolutely saved lives in this event. I, I agree, totally. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I uh, I think the biggest issue that we are dealing with nowadays is is something that's been dealt with you know, in the duration of tornado warnings. It's just people don't believe it'll happen to them. And, and I feel horrible saying it, but I feel like that could have been something that cost people their lives on this event is because they believe that it just wasn't wasn't going to happen to them. And then it was too late for them to take shelter. And, you know, sadly, what happened happened. Guys, let me let me interject just a little bit here. One of the bigger issues in, in my state, I live here in central Alabama, and it's very bothersome to me. And those areas down there are very rural. Auburn Opelika is a more populated area, and even over into Smith Station because you're getting close to Columbus, Georgia. However, that Beauregard area that took the really, really intense hard hit, a lot of those homes are mobile homes and modular homes. Now, in my opinion, based on some of the radar information that I have seen, could this tornado have possibly been top of the scale type EF5 system had it had structures to hit that were of that quality? I can't say that it wouldn't. I think the rating on this thing was great. I think one thing that we have to really hit hard here is these lower income areas that are dealing with these mobile homes and modular homes. We really need to push the idea of storm shelters. In the deep south, one of the most violent tornado-prone areas in the world. And I feel like that that storm shelter issue had kind of subsided a little bit after the 2011 and 2013 outbreaks. But I feel like that's definitely got to be a topic that's got to come back up for discussion. And something really needs to be done like that, even on a federal level now. I'd also ask, like to add one more thing. I used to live in North Carolina and we used to get tornado sirens going off all the time. Uh, and people, and we see this in the in the Midwest, tornado sirens are going off and people are standing outside because they happen so often, they kind of get used to them. So we need to really get a way to make sure that they understand that a, a tornado warning is not something to be taken lightly. Brett, I wanted to go back to your point about the, the storm shelters. We're, we're going to be getting into that later in the show, but it's fascinating how there were actually so few storm shelter, sh shelters in Lee and Macon counties where the EF4 uh, went through. It's, it's a little sad, to be honest, very sad. Um, but before we get into the Lee County tornado and discussing all the specifics, I wanted to ask you all, how do you balance your interest in the weather with a healthy fear for what can happen in these events? Chris, you want to take that first? <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. I mean, you know, everybody's definition of fear is going to be different. Everybody's uh, level of comfort around, you know, storms, that, that 
have the potential to be violent is going to be different. Um, definitely, it's something I wouldn't recommend uh, seeking unless you're extremely comfortable or extremely experienced, or with someone that is experienced. And you know, as far as I'm concerned, it, you know, I'm willing to take certain risk, but uh, you know, I know when it's time to back off. And I think everybody's uh, got their own own level, you know, and and there's 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 a there's just a good blend of it, and and being able to uh, to, to to be able to get where you need to be to bring the right information at the right times is crucially important. And sometimes that does require making a few choices. And so, you know, I, I've spent 15 years of my life uh, trying to, you know, help other people. And that's all I'm going to ever continue to do. Now, what you guys think? I can agree with that, Chris. Um, you know, to be, to be honest with you, in terms of supercells and tornadoes, I'm not really scared of that when I'm on the road. The the concern that I have is more or less the other drivers that are out there, not necessarily chasers, just anybody on the road because I, you see lots and lots of wrecks every day. Uh, the one more calculated um, element that I would say in storm chasing and weather for me in the future will be hurricanes, as uh, as some of you guys know. I I took a, took a pretty bad hit, lost a vehicle, lost a lot of equipment during Hurricane Michael. Um, with some consulting with some fellow meteorologists, uh, which ended up being a bad move. So I just had a pretty pretty close call myself in, back in October. Um, but to be honest with you, I'm very comfortable around supercells. The, the only thing that I can say is this is a whole lot different, and it's a different animal compared to planes chasing here in the southeast. You don't have a gridded road network. You don't have a lot of flat spaces, um, you know, Honestly, we drop pins when we find flat spaces out here in Alabama, and I keep kind of a of a place file of that so that I can I can go back to those areas when I see supercells approaching that area, tornadic circulation, so that hey, I can at least go here and I know I've got a visual. You know, so um, there's a lot of planning, and really, it's taken me a lot of years to do this. I've been running these storms here in the southeast for nearly 18 years now. Uh, it's where I started and, and I'm very comfortable in the plains and I'm very comfortable in the southeast now. So um, to be honest with you, they don't scare me, but I don't recommend it. If you don't have the proper equipment, you don't have the proper knowledge, you haven't been through the training, you know, it's just not worth it to get out these storms. Obviously, that's why we're out there. Uh, you know, me, Chris, Brandon, Alex, we're providing those photos, those reports to the weather service, uh, just trying to get the word out there to the public. And, um, you know, even I, I'm I'm training first response. So if I'm coming up on damage, I'm jumping out of the truck and seeing who I can help and do an emergency transport, whatever we can do. So, you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm trying to be a Swiss Army knife and a multifaceted tool in these events. One of the things with this tornado, especially the one in Lee County, that stood out to me was how many trees were down by this. It looked like, you know, you'd taken a giant bulldozer and knocked down every single tree. Um, was this one of the more visual tornadoes you guys can remember in terms of things like that? In the deep south, probably so. I mean, it was so large early on. Um, it got so intense so fast. I think that it was at its max intensity within the first 10 miles or so within its path. I think that's the max EF4 intensity on County Roads 3839 in Lee County. Um, and we, we were fortunate to get some video in from a drone. I think that this is the first violent tornado that has ever been filmed with a drone. I've been able to look at that. And this tornado was incredibly clear from a distance. However, you bring up a great point, the trees. I mean, you got pines everywhere down here that is the pine belt the black belt of alabama so 
you know, having a visual was few and far in between. And I know given the experience that Alex and Brandon had, because they were there in real time. And I, I think they dealt with an accident that held them up. That wasn't chaser involved. It was just a car accident. And, you know, other human factors, you know, made this a potentially dangerous situation as well. I'll let Alex and Brandon talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I, I wanted to follow up with you on that because, you know, you were talking about the trees and all that. And Alex and I, we were able to gain visual of the tornado briefly uh, a couple times. Uh, we were following it, paralleling it on the state route. I can't remember the state route of what it was exactly, but we were only a mile or two south of it. Uh, and it was a violent tornado. Uh, we came up on scene of an accident. And, you know, literally there's this violent tornado only a mile or two to our north destroying people's lives. And that, that was the most heart-wrenching part to us is, you know, we wanted to help. And we had no idea what was going on just a mile or two up the road. We saw the tornado. We saw the CC drop on radar. But we didn't see anything that appeared to be damaged. We got to that accident scene where there was a deputy just standing there filling out a report like normal, had the whole road blocked off. And I was like, there's a violent tornado doing damage less than two miles up the road. And she had no clue about it. She had absolutely no clue about it. It was just it was just incredible and terrifying at the same time that people just didn't know what was going on and uh, and heartbreaking. It, it was very heartbreaking. We went uh, we actually went up to Smith Station where I'm sure a lot of you have seen the radio tower. Uh, or the cell phone tower that fall that fell over the interstate, blocking the interstate. Um, and my first priority, I was EMT trained in the Army, is doing search and rescue. Uh, so I jumped out of the vehicle and I checked on a restaurant and a gas station. And luckily there was nobody in there. So that's when we decided to drop down to the Eufaula tornado. One question I wanted to ask you guys, um, you're, you're out chasing these tornadoes. Um, Brett, you live in Alabama. And I wanted to kind of tie this into um, how many deaths we saw with this tornado. It was an EF4 tornado that went through a very populated mobile home, manufactured home area. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think there's really much that meteorologists can blame. You know, uh, it's just unfortunate that's where it went through. Uh, but what I want to ask you guys is is the wording. Do people really understand what a tornado watch, a tornado warning is? Uh, do Is there things that we need to do in the meteorologist community that you guys in the storm chaser community, you guys are out in this. You're, you're talking with the survivors and those who have been injured. Is there anything that we need to do in the meteorologist community to help maybe better translate what a tornado warning is, what a tornado watch is, how people need to get prepared for these big storms? Honestly, I don't think that – I think that's one question, as, as Span would say here. I think that's a real good question for the social scientist to try and really dig into this issue. One problem that I see here personally, um, this particular case, you had numerous fatalities that came from J-bolted brick homes. So even though this was a manufactured home area, I'm not so certain that even if you'd had brick homes in these areas like you did on County Road 3839 that were destroyed, you had fatalities there. So I'm not certain that that would have saved people either. I, honestly, it may have given this tornado a higher rating. But I think 
another issue that that really needs to be discussed here is the mentality of sirens. Was it because they didn't hear the sirens? Uh, the big question is why. You're, you're exactly right. Why did they did they not get messages? Uh, you know, everybody's got cell phones these days. Did they not get the EMS alerts via the cell phone? I mean, this tornado, as you show the radar imagery here, this thing was trucking at 60 miles an hour once it went down. So you had little time. Uh, the warning came out several minutes before the tornado touched or went through Lee County. I want to say it was around 11 minutes. But that tornado was so large, so wide, and was coming so quickly. And a lot of these homes that I noticed, not many of them had basements. So unless they had either A, an underground basement, which there were still fatalities in one of those homes, or B, they had storm shelters, you know, and a lot of these manufactured home properties that I walked through and witnessed, uh, you know, just hours after the tornado went through, they didn't have those in place there either. Um, I'm just wondering if people just didn't have anywhere to go. And with, with all the trees, they just saw a black cloud coming. And, you know, it just it hit them before they knew what was coming and you know that that's a very good question though for social scientists to to dig into this um from the people that i've talked to though to be honest with you a lot of the folks were like you know well we've heard these warnings before and nothing ever happens and that is not the proper mentality to have it's been a long time since alabama had a killer tornado of this variety 2011 really since we had a tornado that killed this many people and I hate to put it in this manner, but we were due. We were due a violent tornado. And unfortunately, it, it came on Sunday and, and took all those lives. And I'm hoping with the tragedy that we just witnessed, hopefully it's a wake-up call for everybody. Hey, this is severe weather season in the south. Hey, this won't be the last one that we deal with. And, you know, the time to start paying attention was really last weekend. But going forward – you need to keep an eye to the sky when the meteorologists are saying, you know, severe weather's coming. I like yeah, that. I, I can, well, let, so that sorry, ahead, Brandon, let me just say this real quick. Um, when me and Brandon are even chasing in the field, we both have Verizon. We both have are connected to the same cell phone tower. But sometimes our EMS alerts go off maybe 10, 15 minutes different, which I know that I don't know where that issue actually comes from. But like Brett was saying, that people have become so accustomed to these warnings and watches and whatnot that they just kind of uh, ignore them. And it kind of depends on where you go uh, around the country. Up here in, in Ohio, we have a lot of people that ask me, what is a tornado warning? What is a tornado watch? What is a severe warning? They don't, they don't experience this, they don't understand it. But I think with the advancement of Facebook and Twitter, and getting the more news out there, I think we're going to be able to get faster response times. Yeah, I want to hop in here also, and just if what, what you were saying, Alex, and, and Brett also. It's like, you know, Span said it after the, the Tuscaloosa tornado. You know, if you can get on TV and show somebody a tornado, they're going to listen to you. And so the more and more that we can get out and we can get, you know, streaming video actually of a tornado – and, and get it to the right people, and they see it, they're going to act upon it. At, at right least that's there. my thoughts on it. Right there, that's it. That is that is the exact point that I wanted to make because the big thing, that the most important thing for me when I'm out there is live streaming it, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's on Twitter, 
or on the LSM platform, that is vital to me because I have always stuck by that when Span said that if you show people a tornado, they'll react. That's why we're always trying to keep our live feed up as much as possible. That way people can see what's going on and prepare for it accordingly. Now, following what Brett, Alex, and Chris said, I believe I believe we should see if Facebook could look into, you know, you know how Facebook has the way of telling people you're safe after a tornado and such. Well, why can't Facebook use that location technology to send out warnings? Why can't they send you a notification on your phone, tornado warning for your location, take shelter? If they, can, if they use your location to figure out if you're safe or not for a tornado, why can't they let you know beforehand? Well, and that's that's a very good question, and I'm sure that, that they'll look into that technology. You guys made a very valid point. And, uh, again, here in Alabama, everybody knows who SPAN is and, you know, very well known in the social media community and the meteorological community here around the world. Um, and, and that's key. Showing them – if you can show them something, uh, you know, that radar screen used to be a great tool. And it's great now with dual pole technology, but if you can show them a picture – on the screen of a tornado and you can say hey all right this is coming toward alabama highway 69 tuscaloosa county you need to be down now and you can show that visual element people pay attention it's a proven fact that's the reason we've got a platform live storm chasing we're working with media partners trying to get more and more media partners to use our platform and our storm chasers during severe weather so that we can provide that visual element because television is still a key way of relaying information during these times of severe weather, as well as it's available online, livestormchasing.com. And we have other elements that are out there um, that, are, that are distributing this. I mean, you need to use all forms of technology that are available. And if you can show it and show visual elements, all, by all means, we need to continue to do that and continue to advance on it. This Yo, is I want to... I want to hop in here real quick um, before we head over to the talk about the Georgia tornadoes and discuss the storm shelters. So in Lee County and Macon County, between the two, there are only six community storm shelters, um, which is part of the reason why so few people in those areas that live in mobile homes don't have anywhere to go. Uh, and last night, as we were preparing for the show, uh, Scotty and I were chatting after everyone else had left. We were having a little conversation about how one of the issues with public uh, with public shelters is that people have to drive to those in, the, in a county with only one there's they're not going to be within a 30 second walk uh, and when you have people driving around in a situation where there's a violent tornado bearing down uh, and, and they don't have any idea where it is that puts more people at risk so i think at least in the case of the lee county uh storm shelters it was kind of a lose lose situation where people didn't have any basement to crawl into if you lived in a mobile home um, and there was no storm shelter for them to go to. It goes back to the whole having a plan ahead of time thing and making sure that you know where to go uh, when a severe weather event occurs. Let's transition a little bit from our Alabama storms over to Georgia because uh, multiple states impacted by this severe weather outbreak over the weekend. Let's gr uh, bring in Chris and Melissa who are going to talk a little bit about uh, both the Lee County part or the, the tornado that went into Lee County and then into Georgia and the Cairo, Georgia tornado. So Chris, I'll give it to you guys. Yeah, also, like uh, we were just talking about our last little segment here, yeah, I started the day down uh, toward uh, Eufaula, and, and storms, uh, some discrete cells just started to erupt down there, but they could never really get established. And, and 
you know, even with them not getting established, they were all going tornado warning. They all had great structure. I mean, I mean, the structure that, that the storms possessed, you know, Sunday in South Georgia would, would be something I would expect to see in the middle of May in Kansas. I mean, it was great supercell structure uh, I and mean, uh, classic wall clouds, uh, just uh, really, really good looking storms. But, uh, you know, I, I chased probably five or six different cells. And uh, at one point I got a, had a mesocyclone just east of Sylvester, Georgia. This storm was tornado warm for over 85 miles. And I was with it for about 70. But uh, you know, this, this storm got a, a meso all the way to the ground. And I, at the point I was about four or five miles away from it. So I couldn't tell if it was all the way on the ground, uh, you know, in a, in a true wedge fashion, or if it was just a very low wall cloud. But uh, you know, something I noticed late in the day was, uh, uh, lack of low-level support. You know, every time the storm would get a good wall cloud, it would undercut itself. It, it would it would gust out, and it would just it would interrupt the warm air going into it, and it would just have to start all over again. And, and it just repeated itself probably six, seven, or eight times throughout the afternoon. <clears throat> Chris, I want to add a little bit to that. I know you guys were over there, and we had somebody that was up, you know, north. Those South Georgia storms, to me early on because i was on the dothan sail that crossed over and went toward albany georgia what i noticed with time as the surface low was continuing to develop and move east in central alabama you saw veering flow at the surface down toward the southwest that was really causing trouble getting those southern storms really we almost had the tornado worn storms that came out of crestview and went toward dothan they almost completely collapsed at one point because they lost that surface convergence as those winds veered around at the surface is what I could, from what I could tell. And South Georgia, the more South Georgia tornadoes took place later as that boundary started to creep back to the south and you had a little bit more flow that was perpendicular to that boundary, like the Cairo tornado that took place later on in the day into the evening. There was a little better, um, little better angle to the low level flow there versus earlier. Most of the early tornadoes seemed to be up north along that warm front where those winds were just tremendously backed with the uh, Talbotton, the Eufaula, the Lee County tornadoes. Oh, definitely, without a doubt. Uh, you're talking about the storm down near Dothan that was coming up to western Georgia. I was going for that storm. I, I, I was probably 25 miles from it. And like you said, that storm almost fell apart. It was almost gone off a of radar. And I, I, I made a U-turn in the middle of whatever road that was. And, and by that time, there was another storm going up just uh, outside of Abbeville. And I stayed with that storm for probably – uh, an hour or so, but it, you know, it became apparent probably about three, four o'clock in the afternoon that it was just lacking low level support. I mean, nothing was, nothing was, nothing was, uh, I guess, giving it the, the boost it needed to really start producing a lot of tornadoes, uh, you know, across central Georgia. Uh, but the exception, like you said, down, down further south and, and closer up toward the warm front. And while, of course, it didn't produce a huge outbreak of tornadoes or, uh, you know, as many significant ones as we had across Alabama, we certainly did have a few strong ones. Melissa, you want to talk about those? Yeah, like towards the um, the evening hours, we started to transition into the nighttime tornadoes, which are always the ones that you, you worry about the most. Uh, you know, Brett's made a comment about it, you know, Chris, Brandon, even Alex, that if you can have that visual and you can see that tornado, people are going to believe it's there. And at night, it's even harder to actually get across you know, the severity because you can't see the tornado. There's no cameras. There's no amount of photography that you can do at night to, to show that these are there. And um, the one the one that really kind of stuck out to me was the one that went through um, Cairo, Georgia. 
and it was just it was a quick spin up um there was the um you could see it on the on the on the velocity you could see this really quick spin up and all of a sudden there's this debris ball and it's just sitting over top of the town and everybody is like heart dropped because you could just tell that the town had been impacted by this particular tornado and people are starting to, you know, make reports about the damage. And then we hear um, a dispatcher from the area who's pleading for people to come and help because the tour, you know, the town has taken a direct hit. Um, and in addition to that, you know, Brett had mentioned some of the storms that were coming out of the Crestview area. They were coming across the uh, Northern Panhandle um, in Jackson County and Washington County. We, we, there were tornadoes that were, um, that were confirmed on the ground there. And even as much into to Tallahassee and to, into Leon County where, um, you know, that's the state capitals There's a large population of people that live in that area under a tornado watch or, or tornado warning and um, didn't end up having one of the cells that spawned uh, a tornado that went through um, portions of East Central Leon County and into Jefferson County um, and that dropped an EF3. It was the first or the second EF3, I think, on record since 1945 in that particular area um, that did some significant damage. So, you know, the, these, these are storms that happen during the night. They're really, you know, they're hard to see. They're kind of hard to communicate. And I think in total, um, they just released Tallahassee National Weather Service just released one of their finalized reports, 12 confirmed tornadoes in their area of responsibility. And they issued 45 tornado warnings during that particular event. Um, so, I mean, this was, this, and this was an area that, um, you know, the, the, that was recovering from Michael. Um, and there's a, you know, there's a station that was near the Cairo, um, the Cairo tornado, the, the town that's run by the University of Georgia. They recorded 102 mile an hour wind with that tornado, um, that went through that town. So, um, and I think Scotty had something that he was going to mention about that area. You know, this is the same area that was still, you know, still going through recovery with Michael. Yeah, Melissa, um, thanks for bringing that up. This is an area that, uh, as you can see, there's some pictures scrolling uh, on the other side of the screen. This was an area that was recovering from Hurricane Michael, one of the strongest hurricanes to hit uh, the United States coast, uh, one of the most damaging. So uh, the northern part of Florida and the Panhandle, southern Georgia, uh, there's still families recovering from the effects of Hurricane Michael. Couple months later, now you add these uh, this tornado outbreak, and uh, a lot of areas uh, are just storm. Um, they're just storm tired of storms. You know, there's there's been so much as you can see here. Uh, Sixty two of the counties um, that was affected by Hurricane Michael with damage of some sort of wind, rain, flooding uh, were also under a tornado warning at some time uh, on Sunday afternoon and evening. So uh, this was just a, a storm battered area that uh, was really just needing a break recovering from Hurricane Michael and now they had these uh, tornadoes roll through the area and uh, it's just something that, uh, that they can't win for losing and as we look uh, towards the end of the show uh, there looks to be another severe weather outbreak that's possible somewhere in the southeast. And this area, again, is highlighted for the potential of seeing another round of severe weather. So uh, the folks in northern Florida and the Panhandle and southern Georgia just can't buy a break. And I just found it was interesting that 62 counties um, affected uh, with wind damage from Hurricane Michael also was under a tornado warning at some point on Sunday. And so um, those, those folks, poor folks, uh, it, they just can't buy a break. So just a really interesting stuff as uh, as they move through southern Georgia, northern Florida. 
And as they continued east, we started seeing parts of the Carolinas be impacted. Uh, South Carolina had numerous tornado warnings in effect as we went throughout the day uh, and into the overnight as well. Talk about those a little bit, Melissa, because you actually had a, uh, a not so fun experience with one of the tornadoes. Yeah, um, that was that was definitely uh, an interesting experience. I was so focused on watching the uh, the action in and around Leon County and in southwest Georgia, where I have friends and you know friends I consider family. Um, the next thing I know, the the no weather radio is going off, and we're in the middle of a tornado warning here. So you know, had to uh, pick up everybody and move into the closet and stay in the closet, which was. Um, you know, we ended up having two, two confirmed EF1 tornadoes that came through Lexington County. Um, one was a two-mile track. Um, the other one was close to an 11-mile track. Um, they both paralleled the I-20 corridor. So, um, in, and in addition to those, there was one also just uh, uh, in Richland County, not too far from West Columbia, and the, the Riverbank Zoo that they confirmed as an EF1 tornado. Probably the most significant tornado that they, they confirmed in, in the Midlands was the EF2 that went through Edgefield County, Clarks Hill area. Um, they, we had gotten some pictures there, um, from some of the trees that had been uprooted in, in the Clarks Hill area, um, you know, with just the reports that were coming in and talking with National Weather Service earlier today, you know, looking at some of these pictures from the damage, um, you know, trees just completely leveled. Um, we even had a Kokoros observer that lives in Edgefield County that made a significant weather report talking about the damage that he had in and around his area. So, you know, this is this is one of those events where multiple states were were impacted. And, and so, yeah, I did have that that, you know, close call with that one here in Lexington County. So. All right, we're going to take a short break if we can, James. I believe we have some information from the South Carolina uh, area from Frank Alzheimer, who is at the National Weather Service in Columbia, South Carolina. So just uh, tell me a little bit about uh, what happened this weekend. Well, it was the ideal setup to get uh, severe weather and tornadoes uh, across from southern Alabama up into South Carolina. Uh, storm system had gone by uh, earlier, about two or three days earlier, and went off the east coast, and it left a front draped across the south uh, from central South Carolina down into southern Alabama. And that front sat there until another system came along, and uh, all those uh, strong tornadoes started to form along the front. We had certainly very strong winds from a subtropical jet stream, which Alinu helped out a little bit with, and uh, we had very dramatic changes in air mass on either side of the front. It was very warm and humid on the south side and very cold on the north side. So the combination of the temperature contrast, the strong jet stream, and the position of the front uh, was perfect for a March tornado outbreak uh, over the southeast. Cool. Now how many uh, tornado warnings did you, uh, your office issue? Uh, here in Columbia we issued nine tornado warnings and uh, we verified five tornadoes. Um, the five tornadoes we had were either EF1 or EF2. And where was the strongest one at? The strongest tornado we had was in uh, Edgefield County, which is uh, just north of Augusta, Georgia. Um, we had uh, winds up to 125 miles per hour. With those, it was uh, almost an EF3, but just not quite. Um, tremendous amount of uh, tree damage associated with that particular tornado. And uh, what about the the two uh, the three tornadoes in Lexington originally? Can I uh, talk a little bit about those just briefly? 
Sure, yeah, that was a very complex situation. Um, we actually at one point in Lexington County had a tornado spin up from the same supercell that caused the tornadoes farther to the west. As it moved farther to the east in Lexington County and approached the Red Bank and Lexington areas, we wound up with two tornadoes on the ground at the same time for about three or four minutes, a rather unique type of situation. Then uh, that uh, tornado continued eastward uh, just before it got to West Columbia and it started to dissipate. However, right after that, a new tornado formed just on the other side of the river uh, near the Riverbank Zoo in Richland County. And uh, that was uh, our fifth tornado of the day. Wow. And uh, finally, if you had some, some tips and, and advice to give people for, for better tornado preparation, what would you say? Well, certainly, especially right now, since uh, tornado season is really just starting around here, uh, you want to have an action plan. Um, one of the things that we preach is a ready, set, go concept. Ahead of time, understand what your general risks are. Have an idea of where you would go in your house to an interior location or if in your mobile home and you're able to get to a uh, sturdy building. Um, have that plan out ahead of time. Then when, once a tornado watch is issued, then you have to be ultra aware and be ready to take action at any point should a warning be issued. Then finally, when the warning is issued, that's the go point. You immediately put your plan into action and go to your safe location, ride out the storm. That's great information. Now, where can folks go if they want to just read some more about uh, further preparation for uh, tornadoes and severe weather? Um, both uh, NOAA and FEMA have uh, preparedness sites on the web. Um, this time of year, because we're into the beginning of severe weather season, a lot of your local media is also going to have some similar preparation information on their weather pages. Um, the newspapers may well also carry things in this next coming week. We have a Severe Weather Awareness Week in South Carolina, so there'll be a lot of information there. And of course, social media is a great source to find preparation information. We at the Columbia office will be issuing some preparation statements through Twitter and Facebook throughout next week to have, help people be prepared for the severe weather season. Awesome, thank you for the time and chat with us a little bit about the weather. Thank you, Frank. Appreciate you taking some time to speak to us about that. Uh, let's go back to our chasers, and we can bring everybody in on this, too. Let's talk about how this tornado and the one in Alabama and the tornado outbreak in general will kind of go down in weather history, for lack of a better term. Uh, Brett, I'll bring you in here first. You, since you live in Alabama, you've seen so many Alabama tornadoes. Where will this one go down in, in memorable Alabama twisters? Well, to be honest with you, I mean, this is the most violent tornado outbreak really nationally since 2013. So, I mean, that gives it some merit. We're talking, you know, six years since we've had this type of event with uh, fatality type tornadoes. So it's definitely going in down in history here. Uh, Lee County, it's the most violent tornado to ever strike Lee County. So, you know, local history will definitely remember this one. Um, this particular portion of Alabama, um, they get tornadoes, but you don't see them this violent all too often. Usually you see those violent tracks, track from that corridor of Montgomery to the north and west. We, are ha we have a vast history of EF5 tornadoes here from, you know, two super outbreaks, 74 and 2011. Most of those occurred from Tuscaloosa and north and west uh, up into the Huntsville television market. 
but this one's a memorable one, very memorable one for down in the uh, that Columbus, Georgia area, Smith Station, Beauregard area. It's just, you know, it's been such a long time. Again, I feel like maybe we got a little lackadaisical because it had been so long. So this is a very stark and unfortunate reminder that uh, severe weather strikes Alabama. Severe weather has no bounds, has no limits. And uh, it'll hit you whether you're in a brick house or if you're in a uh, cardboard box. It doesn't care. Alex and Chris, for you guys, one of the more memorable tornado uh, events you've chased? Uh, go ahead, Alex. I'll, I'll let you go. Okay. Uh, for me, um, I've only been chasing for four years now. And this is the most memorable chase that I've had. Um, definitely the most destructive uh, in terms of fatalities and whatnot, we, me and Brandon, unfortunately, didn't go up to go see the damage from the all the fatalities in Lee County. We had to rush back up to get back to work to Toledo, but we did go encounter a tornado in uh, Eufaula, and uh, where that's where you've seen the video of the tornado just grazing us, and there's an airport just to our left, right there, with a fire station the fire department we actually talked to they said they saw us sitting there and they took shelter in their restroom and that's the only building that was standing after that there was planes toppled over um, so I jumped out of the car to do search and rescue asking for injuries and whatnot I actually tore one of my calf muscles trying to do search and rescue so definitely one of the most memorable tornadoes that I've experienced yeah, and uh, same here. I mean, I've never been in a situation where literally every storm around you is tornado warned. Um, there, there was a point in time uh, that Sunday afternoon where, it, like, a lot of times you don't have to, uh, chasing storms, you don't really have to think about which storm you want to chase because there's only one or two to choose from. But, uh, you know, I've never been in a situation Sunday where, where I, I literally had eight or nine at one point, uh, maybe even ten, ten storms to choose from that were within, you know, 30, 45 minutes of me. So definitely something to remember. Something that was really interesting about that Eufaula tornado I want to bring up after talking to uh, some of my NWS compadres around here, that the surface winds ahead of that tornado were just west of due south, around 190 degrees. And within a couple of seconds, as that tornado approached, Alex and those guys watched that thing cross the road. They were right by that airport. That anemometer shifted to 145 degrees, and it broke at like 20 knots. Man, I wish, because it took a direct hit. The airport, the ASOS, all that took a direct hit. Man, I wish we had the data without the equipment failure there. That would have been incredible to look at. I was actually wondering about that, Brad, because the I was the only structure, tall structure that was still standing was the airport uh, weather station. And I was wondering what kind of data they got from that. I think it was right around 20 knots and it, it broke. Um, that was That's all she wrote. That's really unfortunate to hear, and I'd like to say we did survey some other areas around Eufaula, and uh, there was mobile homes just a mile west of where the tornado touched down. So this could have been another deadly tornado. Uh, it ripped the shingles off the houses. Fortunately, nobody was injured in this tornado. So it could have been another deadly tornado also. Uh, guys, t as we recap this, uh, Brett, I have a particular question for you in just a second. But, you know, I, I think as of 
Earlier this afternoon, 34 confirmed tornadoes, uh, confirmed tornadoes uh, 97 tornado warnings issued. Um, we want to thank all those folks who have been watching tonight. I've seen some big names pop up in our group, and we appreciate you, you taking some time to watch our show tonight. Uh, Brett, something that I think you mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, and something I, I've heard James Spann talk about on Weather Brains earlier uh, this week is um, the tornado shelter talk for Alabama, per se, and we can throw this into all of the Southeast, honestly. Um, the tornado talk for storm shelters was a big thing in 2000 uh, when, during the Tuscaloosa tornado. Uh, it kind of died off until now we've had this big spike again. Um, this time, do you think maybe we can get leaders and communities together to actually act upon this and maybe get more community storm shelters, uh, particularly in Alabama, because I know that's a big thing, but maybe even in the Southeast is, it seems like a lot of people's attention is on this right now. and. Uh, severe weather outbreaks look to continue. Uh, it looks like we may be in for an active severe, severe weather season. Do you see a push in Alabama to get these community storm shelters set up this time around? Ricky, I'm sure some of the local leaders and, you know, even some of the state leaders will will, will begin some sort of a push. Uh, it's, it's hard to really know at this point. Uh, Post-2011, I know that was a huge thing. You saw a lot of these companies pop up. The, the biggest issue that we had here locally you know, we had a lot of people opening these companies up uh, and unfortunately some people were taking advantage of. So there was a lot of investigation into some of these storm shelter companies. So I think now the guidelines of, you know, even being an installer of these shelters have changed. Uh, I certainly hope so. I certainly, me personally, I firmly feel like if mobile home communities are going to be established and they are because of just lower income uh, and even lower population areas, they should maintain and make the ownership install community storm shelters. Obviously you can't protect everyone, you know, people that buy their own land and put their own mobile home out there, there's going to be no legislation to make them put a shelter in with their trailer. But the communities, I really and truly think that that needs to be something that's strongly addressed. I mean, when you get a tornado that can buzzsaw through the forest like this, you're talking 1,600 yard wide, almost a mile wide tornado. I mean, mobile homes are not going to be able to make it, even if it's strapped down. Um, case in point, saw one of those type of modular homes that housed a state trooper there uh, on County Road 40, and he's in ICU still. His his frame of his mobile home was wrapped around a pine tree, and he was extracted from the home by the tornado. So unless you're underground or in one of these good concrete shelters, I just don't think that there's any option in a significant violent tornado situation. So we've, we've definitely got to do something as in the meteorological community, as you know political leaders in the state we've really got to start pushing this issue because severe weather is not going away and we've been in a little bit of a drought here maybe from violent strong tornadoes we still had some but we've we've dealt more with hurricane issues in the last couple of years and i feel like again that we may have gotten a little lackadaisical since 20 since 2011 and uh you know well it's been a while since we've really had any bad tornadoes again Everything in climate is cyclical, and I think our cycle's coming around, and we're going to have an active spring here. So that that topic really needs to be pushed right now. There was a viewer question that came in earlier that asked, "Is Tornado Alley kind of shifting east a little bit?" Uh, thoughts on that? Well, 
again, I believe it all comes in cycles. I don't think necessarily Tornado Alley is shifting east, but if you look and you pull all of the climatological data regarding strong to violent tornadoes, the deep south measures just uh, right up with the central plains. And you ask yourself why. Look what's right to our south. We've got a moisture source that's so close that fuels those violent storms. And we get that mid-level dry air that comes off of those desert plateaus to the west. And we deal with significant events here. Um, maybe there's more structure. There's more uh, debris for a tornado to pick up here in the deep south. And I would I would definitely say that's quite you know, quite a possibility considering unless you see, like we saw in 2013, tornadoes in the plains have to strike those towns directly, such as Amore, Oklahoma, and it can hit those structures that are built up to code. So, you know, I don't think necessarily that the, the tornado alley is shifting. I think that more attention is being paid to the tornado strength and intensity here in the deep south now that we're seeing more common occurrences of those tornadoes and maybe those higher ratings. We had and just to, came in uh, uh, that kind of talked about whether tornado sirens would be better suited to maybe sound a different tone when the tornado is getting closer. Uh, has that ever been discussed in anything that you guys have seen? Me personally, I wish they would do away with them. I wish they would trash them because too many people are relying on sirens. There are so many better methods of getting that warning now. Uh, cell phones are good just about anywhere. Um, there's just so many different methods. I mean, the outdoor warning siren thing, I get it. Parks, sure, I understand it. If there's, you know, again, it was a Sunday. You know, I might have took the kids to the park there. So I could get tornado sirens in those areas. But, you know, it really doesn't seem like those sirens are going away. So that's another thing that's, that needs to be up for discussion whether we either have, if we're not going to do away with them, do we add more? Because here in the South, you know, we do our warning test. You know, I don't, I don't ever remember having any fallout since I've been born in 1985 in Alabama. So, you know, those sirens are pretty much used only for either your weekly or monthly warning test and then tornado warning. So, you know, if we're going to have them, do we need to expand them? Do we need to scrap them totally? Um, I understand that, again, there's a couple areas where cell phones don't work. I mean, do they need to be there? Possibly. It's 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 really an issue that's that's been a debate through the meteorological community, you know, for the last 10 years or so. Chris, you had something you want to bring in real quick? Yeah, I want to, want to follow up real quick just with that. You know, we talk about, uh, you know, the biggest tornado op, uh, outbreak since 2013. And really, uh, for you guys in Alabama, everybody knows Tuscaloosa 2011, but uh, going back to actually the, the meat and potatoes of that outbreak was the, the Phil Campbell Halkelberg tornado. You know, that tornado killed more people than, than Tuscaloosa did. Uh, and, you know, you look at the area, you know, even though you had an EF4 go through downtown Tuscaloosa, you have the Phil Campbell and, and Hackleberg tornado that went through a lot more vulnerable area and you had a, a larger loss of life. So I just want I wanted to add before we, we wrap this up um, for the, the, the viewers who are wanting to know about the tornado alley shifting uh, it, on June the 12th, we're going to have Dr. Victor Genesini on. Um, he was with us last year. He, along with Harold Brooks has uh, done some extensive research on maybe this new tornado alley and Victor has agreed to come on the show and talk about his research. So if you're interested in that topic, I encourage you to uh, keep following us over the next couple of weeks and months uh, as we prepare for Victor to come on the show. Cause I think it's a great topic 
topic, and it's something that's getting a lot of treadway uh, in the meteorological community. So uh, that is a, a great a way uh, to, to, to follow up with that. So, Ricky, I'll toss it to you. I think we're going to start to wrap up with um, North Carolina's had their severe weather, weather awareness week this week. Yep, and uh, perhaps a good thing they did is we could see some more storms as we go into this upcoming weekend. Let's uh, let's preface by talking about what this weekend looks like, and then we'll talk about what people should do to get ready for any storm this weekend. So, uh, Chris and Brett, you're our two resident storm chasers. So let's bring you in. Uh, what's got your attention for the coming weekend here? Uh, big trough. I'm sure Brett's probably looking at it too. Yeah, somewhere eastern Arkansas, northern Louisiana, western Mississippi, even even over into western Tennessee. What you think, Brett? Well, I see two things. Um, the biggest thing that I see, you said it, big troughs coming out. Uh, we're going into severe weather season. So climatologically speaking, we're getting into that time period where severe outbreaks are going to become possible, especially in the deep south and the mid-south. Um, what I can tell you is I see a potential for low-top supercells, maybe further north, closer to that trough axis, maybe even Illinois, Missouri, uh, some of those areas. I see the potential, though, for long trackers, uh, Mississippi Delta region, uh, potentially as far west as East Texas, but I'm thinking more of the Arkansas Delta, Mississippi Delta, Alabama, Tennessee area. There's quite the potential because you have better moisture return, uh, tremendous shear coming in yet again, and divergence over top. I mean, the ingredients are coming together for quite an active weekend. And now, um, you know, last night, a area was introduced back down in that Black Belt region down in southern Georgia, Alabama, and over to the Carolinas. So you got to worry about it the entire weekend all the way to the coast now. And one of the things we want people to make sure they're ready for is any severe weather. So uh, Melissa and Scotty, let's bring you guys in here. Let's talk a little bit about severe weather preparedness and what people should do. Uh, a couple days ahead of these storms, what would be stuff that you'd recommend they do now to prepare before any warnings are issued? Well, today, uh, North Carolina, we, we had our tornado drill um, that was um, taking place in schools and businesses. And hopefully during that time, I know a school system I interact with a lot, they took the time to talk to the kids what you need to do to get prepared for a storm. So obviously you need to make a plan uh, where to go. And Melissa, I'll let you jump in here in a minute because you implemented this plan just a couple of days ago. But uh, you need to get that plan together with your family. Uh, I know uh, cell phones are a big distraction, but if you can put those away for just a couple of minutes, come together as a family, talk about where you would go in your house uh, or wherever you live, what you need to take with you. Uh, as James Spann has said, and, and something I do at school presentations, I always tell the kids, you want to have a helmet because uh, a helmet, a lot of uh, injuries and death come from uh, head trauma during these events. So you definitely want to have a helmet, some glasses or something to protect your eyes. Uh, and you also want to have that supply of food and, and just uh, essential stuff that you may need if a storm was to hit your area. And Melissa, uh, I'll let you jump in here because you and your daughter, uh, you guys went through this over the weekend. Well, we've, we've had a, a plan that's always been in place. Living in Florida for 20 years will make you be prepared for a hurricane season, and it works just as well in severe weather season. But as soon as the watch goes out, we typically will pull stuff together that we know we're going to need in the event of an actual warning or something to happen. So as soon as the watch went out about 4 p.m., we gathered some pillows, some blankets. We made sure there were a pair of shoes for each of us in the closet. We had a phone charger packed, a change of clothes in a bag. Um, and along with the cat carrier so we could put her in there if we needed to move and we staged it during the watch So as soon as the warning hit we knew all we needed to do was basically grab the cat and grab ourselves and get in the closet So it was that that 
pre-stage time, you know, even during the watch, even if we didn't need to enact the next action, you know, we had all of that stuff in place so that when the warning did come, we were able to make that action and take it very quickly without having to try and scramble and think about what it is we, we needed to do. Um, you know, but you know, it's just like, it's preparing almost like preparing for hurricane season. You want to make sure that you have um, you want to make sure that you, you, you've, you've got everything that you need in order to, to stay safe and stay prepared, um, you know, and hopefully we don't have to enact any of that stuff, you know, here in the Carolinas or even in the South, you know, the Southeast this upcoming weekend. But the best thing you can do now is think about that plan. Like Scotty said, get with your family and talk about what those steps are going to be when that watch comes out and then what you're going to do as a family once that warning is issued. And another another important thing, and Ricky, I'll, I'll toss it to you because this is something that you have to deal with in your your everyday job is know where you live, know where you're at on a map, you know, know which county you are, know that you can point out that county on a map. So if a tornado watch or warning is issued, you can kind of tell where you are in relation to where these storms are coming in and if you're in a watch or a warning. Yeah, for sure. I, the, one of the best things, though, because so many people don't know where they live that's been uh, invented is GPS in your cell phone. So a lot of apps out there are geo-targeted now, so you can uh, put it to your exact location. Uh, weather radio apps can actually track your location throughout the day. So having an app like that versus just a stock weather phone uh, app or something like that can really, you know, save your life potentially. The 10 bucks here, you know, there today. I know uh, money can sometimes be tight for a lot of people, but if you can spend 10 bucks, get a nice app on your phone and uh, you'll be set the next time severe weather comes in. So looks like we've got a lot to uh, kind of look forward to this weekend, a lot to watch this weekend. Uh, thank you, Brett, and our other chasers for coming on tonight. I know they had to drop off early, but thank you so much for uh, joining us tonight. And uh, good luck if you head out, head out this weekend. Hey, uh, Brett, if you want to plug yourself, go ahead also. Yeah, yeah man, uh, we'll be out there for sure. Um Again, people that want to monitor us, I know Chris will be out too. We're we're going to be on uh, LiveStormChasing.com. We try to keep all those live cameras going so that uh, obviously our media partners can have those while we're out in the field. But also, you can watch on you know on your own smartphone here. Uh, live Chasing is the app on the iOS or the uh, Google Play Store. You can kind of watch us as we're out there messing around, and uh, we even have a couple of fun moments there. You know, while we're just trying to get to the target area, kind of interact with some of our some of our viewers and stuff. But uh, we're definitely going to be repping Livestorms Media well and and throwing out you know all the videos that we capture as quick as we can, and also getting that information out there to the local media and the National Weather Service. And uh, as soon as we see things, so uh, Chris, hopefully I'll see you this weekend, and uh, everybody have a good week. Absolutely. I'll be, I'll be there. All right. I think we're going to close with uh, what you need to do for a tornado warning. But before we do that, I do want to say next week on our show, we're going to have Robert Steenberg. He works with the National Weather Service uh, Space Weather Prediction Center. So we're going from severe weather to space weather. So we hope you'll join us next Wednesday night here at 815 uh, as the, the Carolina Weather Group reconvenes. And again, uh, monitor us throughout the weekend. Uh, we'll be here. I know uh, the Carolinas are in that uh, Sunday risk for severe weather. So uh, if severe weather does arise, we'll be here to give you wall-to-wall -wall coverage, uh, just like uh, James was available last weekend. 
I'm going to say this publicly because uh, James was running the ship last weekend. I certainly appreciate uh, all the efforts and time that he did. And we got some nice feedback and some great comments from that coverage. So uh, stay with us throughout the weekend here at the Carolina Weather Group. We'll keep you up to date with uh, any severe weather that does move into the area. Uh, for those who are living in Alabama and Florida and Georgia, uh, we, uh, our thoughts and prayers are with you, and we hope that you uh, get back up on your feet soon. So with that, we're going to toss it to what you need to do during a tornado warning, and you can catch us back here again next Wednesday night at 8.15 p.m. Eastern with Robert Steenberg from the National Weather Service Space Prediction Center. A tornado warning? Act now. You may only have a few minutes to get to safety. Seek shelter immediately. Go to a safe room, basement, storm cellar, or the lowest level in a sturdy building. If there is no basement, go to the center of the building and away from windows and doors. Put as many walls as possible between you and the outside. Get under a sturdy object like a table and cover yourself with pillows and blankets. Use your arms to protect your head and neck. A helmet can offer some protection too. If you are in a car, drive to a shelter immediately. If there isn't enough time and you are caught by extreme winds or flying debris, park the car as quickly and safely as possible out of the traffic lanes. Stay in the car with the seatbelt on. Put your head down below the windows. Cover your head with your hands and a blanket, coat, or other cushion if possible. Do not park under an overpass or bridge and never try to outrun a tornado in an urban or congested area. If you are outside, find the lowest point on the ground and lie face down. Use your arms to protect your head and neck. And most importantly, watch out for flying debris. It causes most fatalities and injuries. Safety is job number one. Get weather ready.